This is the second part of a two-episode series, mini-series, on uh, trust and divorce. And, and just as a reminder, in the first episode, I referred to an article that came in September of 2021, was published then by marriage.com, uh, titled The 10 Most Common Reasons for Divorce. And in that, in, in these two episodes, I'm correlating each one of those 10 reasons for divorce to trust, or more specifically, to distrust. Last week, in the first part, I covered five of those reasons. This week, I'm going to cover the other five. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of the Book of Trust and facilitator of the Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Just as a reminder, the five that I covered last week, the five reasons, causes for divorce were one, infidelity, two, financial trouble, three, lack of communications, four, constant arguing, and five, weight gain. Now I'll talk about number six, unrealistic expectations. The, the article did not give, or the research that the article was based on, did not give any specific uh, percentage of what uh, percentage of uh, marriages uh, fall apart or divorces are due to unrealistic expectations, but you can see where they're coming from. Uh, the unrealistic expectations, the first component I would correlate this to would be personality compatibility. We have different expectations. We expect different things. Uh, as long as those things are, again, if I go back to the personality compatibility component of the relative trust model, the uh, different uh, components of, of that personality compatibility can be at the very high level, which I would call universal or absolute, which have to be exactly the same. We have to be on the same page or go all the way down to just be different, be, be the same, or even be complementary. And in some uh, things, my wife and I, for example, and uh, I mentioned it last week, I'm going to mention it again today, that this coming April, we're going to celebrate 30 years of marriage. And we're not identical. We're not the same in everything. But where we're not the same, we are either complementary or we're different in a way that doesn't bother each other. Uh, so not everything that I do, my wife uh, likes, or not every everything that I expect, she expects. But those expectations are not unrealistic and they're not uh, conflicting with each other. So unrealistic expectations, I would call a an under-exploration of personality compatibility. By the way, the biggest thing that I found that has the correlation, the biggest factor on uh, trustworthiness or trust is shared values. 
Have we explored our values? And, and you know, this might even get to politics if we really care strongly about politics and it ranks really high in um, in our uh, relationships or, or in our view of the world. If we rank politics, if both of us rank politics very high, but we're on opposite direction, especially with the level of, of political polarization and the rhetoric that we get from the extremes in both parties, that could be an issue. That could possibly lead to divorce. But in general, it's things that are incompatible. Again, I'm not saying that things that are different because we're different. My wife and I are different in many ways. In some ways, even ways that are important, we are uh, compatible because we are complementary. And in other areas, we're compatible because we just don't care about those incompatibilities. And in other areas, we're just the same. But we don't have any strong areas where we expect really different things and we have an issue with the other person expecting something else. Now, the cause for this goes back to the model, and that's time and intimacy, uh, and simply that we did not discuss enough our personality compatibility. If you remember, the... the uh, Relative trust model is made of three components under the category of who you are and three components under the category of uh, what you do during an interaction with, with the other side to that relationship. And often the unrealistic expectations is a reason of just not discussing it enough. Um, I don't know who you are enough and I have not spent enough time and asked enough questions and answered enough of your questions to really know who you are and for you to know who I am before we got married. Now, I have to admit that uh, my wife and I, uh, I believe we dated about six months before we got married. And in some cases, that's short. That's not a lot of time. But the level of intimacy, and again, I'm not talking about the intimacy I'll talk about in the next uh, uh, reason, but the level of intimacy uh, in our conversations and the amount of time that we spent was enough for us to really know who we are. And, and plus, we were fortunate enough to be highly personal, personally compatible or have a highly compatible personalities. So unrealistic expectations really causes personality incompatibility, which leads to trust, one of the major reasons to lead to distrust. And the reason is not enough time and intimacy at the front and before we got married to know whether we're, our personalities are compatible or not. The next component is lack of intimacy. Seven, not the seventh reason that quoted by the article in marriage.com is lack of intimacy. And in intimacy here, they I think they are implying not enough sex. And I believe it or not, but I am going to uh, to talk about that. And and it's it's not enough sex, but it's probably broader than that. And it's not enough intimacy the way I talk about intimacy in the relative trust model, and that uh, spending more time with each other face to face in person. But it's actually even the physical intimacy. 
And here's how physical intimacy is going to relate. In 2004, Paul Zak did a study uh, and uh, he actually uh, turned that study into a, a very successful TED Talk. In that study, he took 194 participants. If I remember correctly, they were students. And uh, what he did was he gave them, it's actually a spray that you get through your nose, 24 IUs or units of oxytocin. It's, it's a hormone that, that typically is uh, generated uh, by a gland in our brain, the hypothalamus. Half of them got those 24 units of oxytocin. Half of them got placebo. So they didn't know which one is getting uh, the, any participant. None of the participants knew if they're getting oxytocin or a placebo that has no effect. Then they were asked to play the trust game. And the trust game is a game where, uh, you know, one of the participants gets a certain amount of money, needs to decide how much of it to give the other side. Whatever they decide to give the other side, the bank triples it. So the other side will get three times the amount that the first side decided to give. And then they can give some back. This time it doesn't get tripled. This time it doesn't get tripled. So why is that a trust game? Because when you give, you can decide, let's say that, that, that we're talking about $100, you get $100, you can decide how much you're going to give the other side. You can decide, you know what, uh, I'm going to keep everything to myself, giving them nothing. Nothing times three is still nothing. You don't care how much they're going to give back because they don't have anything to give back. You keep the $100. The most efficient game is when the first party decides to give the other party $100, the entire amount, the entire $100. When you give them the entire $100, they actually get $300 because the bank triples it. The only problem is that now you're left with nothing other than trusting the other side to give some of it back. Obviously, the most fair game is going to be if the first one gives most fair and effective is going to be if the first one decides to give 100 to the other side, the other side gets 300, gives the first side 150 back. Now we each have 150. I have 50% more than I had before, uh, before I gave 100 to the other side. But you have to trust them. So they looked at the results and what they found was that those who got oxytocin originally gave 18.5% more to the other side. The median was actually 25% more. So if I decided to give, uh, I don't know, well, not $100 because I can't give 25% more if I only got $100. But if I got, let's say, $40, if on average it would have been $40, then those with oxytocin would typically give $50, 25% more. Here's the amazing thing. 45% of those who got oxytocin gave the other side everything, which was 117% higher than those that did not get oxytocin and got the placebo. So, you know, the conclusion is obviously that oxytocin increases the level of trust. Except that we're not sure that it increases trust or your willingness to take risk and lose those $100 or whatever you got. 
So they did a second experiment. In the second experiment, the other person, which we would call the trustee, the person that we need to trust, was actually not a person. It was a computer. And the decision of how much they're going to give back was completely random. And you knew that it was random. What that means is now you're taking pure risk. Now it's not a matter of trust anymore. It's just a matter of how much risk I'm willing to take. That computer, I don't know how much it's going to give me back. So now we isolated trust out of the equation to stay with risk. In that game, there was no statistically significant difference between those who got oxytocin and those who got placebo. What that tells us is that oxytocin did not affect risk-taking profile, but it affected your your willingness to trust the other person. So oxytocin leads to trust. Now, I haven't seen, neither from Paul Zak or anybody else, a research that actually says this these many units would lead to this amount of uh, extra trust. Except, you know, we can say 24 units led to, uh, uh, you know, 18.5% to 25% to whatever the number is, uh, higher investment, therefore higher trust. So I looked up, you're still thinking, what is that related to intimacy? Well, I looked up an article from Psych Central, one of the leading psychology magazines, in 2018. And this is a direct quote from that article. In humans, oxytocin is thought to be released during hugging, touching, and orgasm in both genders. In the brain... Oxytocin is involved in social recognition and bonding and may be involved in the formation of trust between people and generosity. So Paul Zak in his study already uh, confirmed or correlated oxytocin with trust. But how do you create trust? Hugging, touching, and orgasm. In other words, intimacy. So oddly enough, that intimacy, that physical intimacy of hugging, touching, and orgasm increases trust. Lack of intimacy or lack of those physical intimacy components reduces trust. And therefore, that's probably why they found that it's a factor that leads to divorce. The eighth reason for uh, divorce was uh, cited as lack of equality by the article. And lack of equality, I mean, it really lends itself to the symmetry component of uh, the uh, relative trust model. The symmetry component, how does lack of equality in, in a... Uh, in a marriage manifest itself? Well, one of us is contributing more. One of us is working harder. By the way, working harder doesn't have to be working a job harder. It can be doing the dishes. I have to do the dishes all the time. I have to do laundry all the time. I have to take care of this all the time. You're not taking care of any of those. That's a lack of symmetry or lack of equality as as, uh, named uh, in the article. It could be a lack of symmetry in getting more. You know, I buy myself more stuff than uh, than uh, I allow you to buy. You know, I always get the better car. You get a uh, second best car in the family. You always get the second best car in the family. 
I have to say, you know, I, I'm thinking about the cars that we have and had in the past. And I don't think that there was any point in time where we could say that one of them is better or worse than the other. I think that in terms of the amount of money that we spent on, on cars, uh, we spent just about the same amount of car on of money on both our cars. The cars were very different. I mean, for a very long time, uh, I loved driving BMWs while my wife loved driving the big, the full-size, the extra full-size SUVs. Uh, they just about cost the same, at least the BMWs I bought and the, the uh, full-size SUVs that she had. But um, so it doesn't have to be the same car but it has to feel like they're equal. So th this is a car is only one example. You know, how much do we spend on ourselves? How much do we go out uh, for food and so on? So that's that's part of symmetry. And I told you before that in one of my experiments, I found that when the gaps are bigger, I, I should say the other way around, when trust is lower, the gaps are 7.2 times bigger. And so obviously when, when the gaps are bigger, trust is lower. It plays into the component of fairness, which, which is one of the major components, subcomponents of symmetry. But, but I want to touch on another thing, and that is the shame being felt by the person who's contributing less or, or taking more. Uh, and I'll tell you, when I started this business, in the first two, two and a half years was actually making less than my wife was making. I never had a problem in the first, I don't know, 17 years we lived in the US or uh, it, it's actually more than 20 years uh, that uh, we've been married. I never had a problem when I made more than her. I, I never felt that there was less of equality because I really attributed a lot of value to what she did for our marriage and and in uh, our home and, and our daughters um, I actually felt bad more when she contributed more and in the first two or two and a half years of of my business uh, when I contributed less I felt shame and I felt less of equality and and it was my fault and it was lack of symmetry. I don't know how many people would divorce their partner because they themselves contribute less or take more and feel shame and because of that want a divorce, but it's part of uh, the lack of equality and uh, I can see that happening. The ninth reason quoted by the article at marriage.com is the not being prepared for marriage. And actually they claim, or the research that the article was based on, claimed that this was a reason for 75% of divorces, not being prepared for marriage. And, and I think that not being prepared for marriage has several aspects. One of them is I'm not prepared to marry you versus I'm not prepared to be married to whoever that is. I kind of covered the first one on not being prepared to marry you in that we did not spend enough time in intimacy to components of the uh, relative trust model to get to know each other and to know that we're personally compatible. 
So here I brought in the personality, personality compatibility component as well. So uh, it could be that, it could be that, that we're not prepared because we haven't spent enough time, we don't know each other, and as a result, we get married and then we start finding things out. But I talked about that uh, more under another component uh, in the previous episode uh, last week, the first part. I'm going to talk about a second part, and that is, and, and I see that a lot when I see whether it's friends of mine getting their kids married or, or you know, younger people getting married. I got married in, in an older age. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you how we decided to get married. I mean, uh, we were walking down the street one day after knowing each other for about, I would say actually about three months, not, not more than three months. And we were walking down the street hand in hand and uh, it kind of came into the conversation. So uh, what do you say we get married? I mean, it wasn't the uh, what you see today. I mean, I see so many pictures that focus on the symbolism. You know, that I, I would rent a plane that would fly with a sign uh, that says, will you marry me? And uh, or, you know, get on the big screen during a football game, uh, get on one knee, have that ring. And so I never bought my wife a ring. I mean, I paid for rings, but... I think one thing in in our and and this is part of our personality compatibility that I know that she needs she has her taste and she's going to get hers. In fact, the only time one of us I'm not even going to say decided on a ring or or any type of jewelry for the other was my wife deciding and and again, wasn't really deciding but what uh wedding ring I should wear. And it started with, uh, you know, we decided to get married and uh, she went to uh, a jewelry store. Uh, and, and you know, our, our tastes are, are kind of, I'm not going to say identical, but, but very close. So she found a ring for herself. The ring was made of titanium and gold. You know, frankly, I don't think that it was the... Uh, symbolism of how strong of an element a metal titanium is as she just liked it she liked the design it was a different design the focus her focus was not on the symbolism and then she saw another ring made of titanium and gold which she thought i would like and so she actually came to me and said uh yoram um I want you to keep an open mind, which is always a bad start for a, a conversation. But she said, I want you to keep an open mind. I saw a ring that I think you're going to like. So I went with her to the jewelry store. She showed me the ring that, that I would be wearing. I looked at it and I said, you know what? I like it. Now, was it the best ring I ever saw? Was it what I would choose for myself? I don't know. What I do know is I looked at it, I like it. Uh, it's been probably 30 years since we bought that ring, both rings, and we still have those rings. And, uh, you know, I don't wear my wedding ring uh, much. Don't don't look for any reasons why I do that. Uh, but uh, when I do, that's the ring that I wear. So I see a lot of young couples 
focused on the symbolism of getting married, of the proposal itself, of the she said yes, of the balloons and of the uh, fireworks and the plane with the sign and the place where we're going to get married and so on. We got married in, ended up being a very nice place, but uh, we got married. The budget was was a big part of it. And we found a place that uh, to get us married the time we wanted to get married, and uh, for the budget we wanted to get married at, we were one of the first couples in Israel to get married on a Friday at noon. And that was unheard of, and we were one of the first ones. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually were the first ones. Uh, and we did that, did that for budget reasons. Uh, we liked the place, and, and that was within our budget. The focus was not on the symbolism. You know, do we celebrate our our birthdays and and our anniversaries? We do, but not to the extent that some other people do. And so I think that not being prepared for marriage could be because we focus more, or many, focus more on the symbolism of marriage, on the concept of marriage, than actually who you're marrying. The last and tenth reason the article at marriage.com gave for why people divorce or the research underneath it, and and there was no percentage associated with it, is physical and emotional abuse. Do I need to tell you that, that if one partner to the marriage abuses the other part, either physically or emotionally or both, that... Not only that it's a good cause for divorce, but also that it's a good reason for distrust. I'm going to guess that I don't need to tell you that, uh, and that, but, but I'll tie it to the model anyway, because physical and emotional abuse obviously uh, impact positivity. Uh, or specifically negativity. It's uh, bo- Either one of those has a very negative impact in every interaction, every interaction with uh, the partner that uh, ends up or includes physical or emotional abuse is one that reduces trust, increases distrust uh, rather than increases trust. So uh, it, it uh, kills trust. There is the symmetry. Physical and emotional abuse is typically one way. Uh, one member, one partner in, I, I think even the word partner is uh uh, is uh, too much to describe someone who physically or emotionally abuses the other person, the other member of that that marriage. Um, but typically, it's a one-sided thing, and therefore symmetry is out the wall. We're not on the same side; we're on opposite sides. You're on the the abusing side; I'm on the abused side. So symmetry obviously is is hurting. Personality compatibility, I mean, unless you tell me that uh, the other side to the abuse enjoys uh, the abuse and therefore they are complementary, which I would highly doubt that you're going to be able to find me a couple like that, where one is the abuser, the other is likes to be abused and therefore they're compatible. That's a major incompatibility being abused, either physical or emotional. So that's another reason. I guess the only point here is to uh, ask whether physical and emotional abuse 
is a cause for distrust and therefore a cause for divorce or that physical and emotional abuse are reasons for both distrust and divorce independently. I don't know, we, we can argue that and, and it really doesn't matter because uh, they're leading to both, to a loss of trust and to divorce. This is the end of this two-part, uh, two-episode uh, series on uh, marriage or divorce specifically and trust or distrust, uh, where I kind of took this article from marriage.com and I'm going to give you the link here because it's a link that's not hard to uh, to relay without writing it. It's www.marriage.com slash advice slash divorce slash 10 dash most dash common dash reasons dash for dash divorce or 10 most common reasons for divorce with dashes between every and 10 is in numbers the number 10 one zero so this is how i build on this article and correlated all 10 reasons based on a research of four thousand divorced uh couples uh based on research that was done and I correlated all of those 10 factors, 10, 10 reasons to trust. And I really do believe that distrust is really the reason for divorce. And that those 10 reasons, 10 causes, are 10 causes for distrust. And because of distrust, there's divorce. I typically talk about trust in the context of the workplace, in the context of uh, human resources. And, and I kind of took a journey that to talk about something that has absolutely nothing to, to do with the work and the workplace. And I'm going to guess that every now and then I'm going to take those journeys and apply the trust model, the trust habits framework to uh, other areas than work. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.